I bet you didn't know I could speed paint. That was cool, huh? No, that wasn't me. That wasn't me. Uh, no, in fact, I failed finger painting in preschool, so no way I could do that. That was an amazing art d- display. Uh, and what I loved about that was it kind of took us through the journey of Scripture. It kind of helped us see from the very beginning, you know, when God created the heavens and the earth. You saw it, they planted the globe first. And, and if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, we, we see that very in the beginning, God spoke and, and he created and he looked at what he created and he said it was good. In fact, when he looked at you and me, he said we were very good for we were the crown of creation, created in the very image of God. Unfortunately, beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve, as depicted by the apple there. And I always feel like the apple gets a bad rap because the Bible doesn't say that it was an apple they ate, right? But it was just the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You remember the story. It's in Genesis chapter 3. And the slithery sly serpent tells Adam and Eve that, well, you will be like God if you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For you too will, like God, know good and evil. And even though that was the one rule they were told not to do, like a child when you tell them not to go into this room, the one room they want to go into is the forbidden room. The one fruit they wanted to eat was the forbidden fruit. And so they succumbed to the temptation and they brought in that original sin. And when original sin came to this earth, all of creation was corrupted. We have now inherited a a sinful nature that left our own is is prone to wander from God. It's prone to stray from God, as Murray pointed out. You know, we are all sinners in need of God's grace. The good news of the Bible is that God doesn't abandon us in our sin, does he? No, in fact, we can see even in Genesis chapter 3, in that story of the original sin, we can see that God helps us see that there will be a deliverer coming someday. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 to 15, we read, The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Martin Luther points out, uh, the great reformer, that this offspring of woman Well, this was Jesus who was going to ultimately bruise, crush the head of Satan, the serpent, the evil one. But before the Messiah comes, we know in the Old Testament that there's a lot more that must happen. As the little video displayed, you know, from Adam and Eve, it went to Noah and then Abraham, then Joseph with the amazing technicolor coat. If you haven't read the story, maybe you saw the musical. ALT did a great job with that. And then from there, there's Moses. And of course, you know, we remember Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments, right? That was an amazing movie. And then then there was David, and and then Daniel, and then Jonah, and numerous characters throughout the Old Testament. These were all men of God who knew the Lord, whom God used to do a great and mighty work in and through them. But none of these men were sinless. They all had sin. Abraham was a liar. Remember that? He lied about whether or not Sarah was really his wife or not. He, He was afraid the other kings might kill him if they found out that Sarah was beautiful, like my Sarah (laughs) that was his wife and then there of course there's the story of of, uh, Joseph and Joseph was self-centered telling his brothers about his dreams about his mighty glory not thinking about how that story those dreams might be received by his brothers Moses was a hothead often losing his patience with others David was an adulterer even Daniel confesses in Daniel 9 that, that he is complicit with the sins of the people of Israel and of course Jonah Jonah runs the other direction when God calls him 
to Nineveh. Jonah was a very rebellious prophet who did not want to speak to the people of Nineveh. Yes, so as we read through the Old Testament, we'll see time and time again that God calls men and women, but each one of these men, each one of these women have some foible, some sin in their life that prevents them from being sinless. None of them were the Messiah, the Savior. As great as they were, they all had sin. Only the Messiah was without sin. But it's interesting, by the first century, when Jesus is born, it had been over 400 years since a prophet like Malachi had spoken to the people of God. The people of Israel were feeling like that God had had silenced himself, that their own sin and their own rebellion had, had led them ultimately to be rejected by God because God had allowed them to be conquered by the Persians. They had lived under Persian rule and Greek rule, and now they were living under Roman rule. God seemed to be absent. He seemed to be silent. But then in the first century, God spoke. God spoke a mighty word to his people. And to see exactly what God had to say, I would encourage you to open your red pew Bibles that are in front of you in the pew to the Gospel of John chapter 1. It may be found on page 1127 of your red pew Bible, the Gospel of John chapter 1, so that we might hear the word that God spoke to his people, that God is speaking to us still tonight if we will simply listen. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit to, again, to guide us in the reading and the preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Oh God, we thank you that your Holy Spirit inspired John to put pen to paper, to tell the story, to communicate to us what you want us to hear. Oh God, tonight give us ears to hear and give us a mind that might be opened and transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name, we pray in all God's people said, amen. John chapter one, beginning with verse one, listen to the word of the Lord. In the beginning, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Genesis one, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God." And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, no one has ever seen God. 
the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, you know, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, of all the terms that I could use to describe Jesus, word is not one of those terms I would pick. I would say Savior, you know, Mighty One, Son of God. But, but John describes Jesus as the Word. Why does John describe Jesus as the Word? Well, the New Testament was written in Greek. Greek was the language of trade. If you wanted to write something that people would read, you would write it in Greek. Very similar to English is the language of trade today. In fact, you know, most people in Europe, I had an opportunity to celebrate uh, the uh, 500 year of the anniversary of the Reformation. We went to Germany and France and we went to Switzerland and I was amazed that everybody there spoke English. I don't speak French, I speak a little bit of Spanish, un poquito, cuando necesito. You know, when I have to talk it, I'll speak it. But, you know, nobody, I didn't know any German, I didn't know any French, I didn't know any Swiss, but it didn't matter because they all knew English, right? I think you've heard, what, you know, which is someone who knows two languages, they're called bilingual and Someone who knows three languages is called trilingual, and someone who knows one language is an American, right? <laughs> we all speak English. The whole world should speak English, right? We're the wealthiest nation in the world, and because we are, you know, we, we have the dominant language of trade. So Greek was the dominant language of trade. Everyone could read Greek, and so John wants his gospel to be spread among all the people. He doesn't write it in Hebrew. Only the Israelites knew Hebrew. So he wrote it in Greek, and in the original Greek, the Greek word for word is logos. We get the English word logic from logos. In the Greek mind, John writes to a Jewish audience living in a Greek context. In the Greek mind, the divine logos revealed God's mind, God's purpose, God's logic. And so just as we use word to one another, like I will tell my wife and children that I love them and I try to show them that I love them, John wants to make sure that we're clear that God sent his son Jesus to communicate a very clear word to us so that we, might, we won't miss the message. To help us understand the importance and why God had to send his son and become one of us to take on flesh. Paul Harvey, who always told the rest of the story, tells this classic Christmas story about an agnostic farmer who was a kind man, a hardworking man, a loving man, but he did not believe in Jesus. He did not believe in the Christmas story. It seemed odd to him to think that God would become a man. But dutifully, as a kind husband, he would often go to church on Christmas Eve with his wife, who was a believer, who believed in Jesus. Well, one Christmas Eve, he had been working particularly hard that day, and he was very tired, and he told his wife, you know, I'm not going to go to the Christmas Eve service tonight. Well, his wife was most upset and said, please come, please come. He said, no, I'm, I'm just too tired. And besides, I feel like a hypocrite when I sit and worship and sing these songs because I don't believe in Jesus. Well, she left. He stayed home. He began to read his paper in front of the fire. And while he was, all of a sudden he heard this tap on the windowsill in the back. He went to look to see who it was that might be tapping on the back windowsill. And there he saw these three little birds huddled together, trying to stay warm, tapping on the windowsill, pecking on the windowsill, hoping that they could get inside the house where it would be warm so they could survive the cold winter night. Well, the farmer was agnostic, but he wasn't heartless. And so he thought, well, gosh, I want to help these birds. 
And he knew he couldn't open the window because then the birds would be in the house. And Well, he was already kind of in the doghouse with his wife, so he thought, that's the last thing I can do. What can I do? We thought about it. You know, I want to know what I'll do. I'll, I'll open the barn door and I'll rustle up some hay and I'll turn on the light and I'll shoo the birds into the barn because if they spend the night in the barn, they'll be able to survive and, and they will be saved from the cold winter night. So he goes outside and he opens the barn door. He rustles up some hay. He turns on the light and he goes to the windowsill and he tries to shoo the birds into the barn. And the birds flutter in all sorts of directions, but ultimately they, they just come back to the windowsill trying to get back inside. Well, he thought to himself, I, I can't shoo them in there. I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll tempt them in there. I'll, I'll get a, some bread and I'll make a trail of breadcrumbs from the windowsill all the way inside the barn. And they'll begin to eat the bread and, and eventually they'll find themselves inside the warm barn and they'll be saved from the cold winter night. Well, he makes the trail of breadcrumbs and sure enough, the birds are cold and they're hungry. And so they begin to eat the breadcrumbs. But as they get about halfway between the windowsill and the barn, they become too cold. And they go back to the windowsill. Tapping once again, trying to get inside the house. Frustrated and out of any practical ideas, the farmer just thought to himself, man, if I could just be a bird, then I could communicate to them and I could show them the way to safety and how they might survive the cold winter night. And just then, he heard the church bell ring in the distance. And he realized why God had to become a man. You see, before Jesus, the people of God had the word of God. They had the Ten Commandments. They, they knew the words of the prophets. It was very clear what God wanted them to do, but they never had anyone show them how to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6. They'd never seen anyone love their neighbor as themselves, as we read about in Leviticus chapter 19. No, they had no one to show them how to, how to live out God's word and how to be God's faithful followers until Jesus came. But Jesus didn't just come to this earth to show us the way. Jesus ultimately came to this earth to be the way. As Jesus will later explain in his gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Greek word for way there is adas. It can also be translated as way, road, or path. Eugene Peterson, a Presbyterian minister who translated the Bible into contemporary English, translates John 14, 6 this way. He says, Jesus said, I am the road, also the truth, also the life. No one gets to the Father apart from me. Through his death on a cross, Jesus paved a road so that we might have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. You see, Jesus did for us what we can never do for ourselves. Jesus lived in perfect obedience to God's law. Yes, he was the perfect example, but he also was the perfect sacrifice for our sins when he died on a cross. For as Deuteronomy tells us, cursed is he who is hung on a tree, as Paul reminds us in Galatians, or as Paul reminds us in in 2 Corinthians, he who is without sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is we all stand before God's judgment seat and we all have our own sin and our own foibles, just like the Old Testament characters. There are things we have done that we should not have done. And there are things that we should do that we've left undone. Yes, we're all sinners in need of God's grace. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the Christmas story is that God doesn't abandon us in our sin. No, he actually becomes one of us. In fact, he humbles himself 
as a little baby in a lowly manger. And this baby grows up among us. And he teaches us. And he heals us. And ultimately, he dies for us as that perfect sacrifice. And then on the third day, on the third day, he rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf so that we might have the the victory in Christ, so that we might have a new life in him if we'll simply believe. I love the way Tim Keller says it. Tim Keller's a pastor from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. You can see I like to quote Presbyterians, although Martin Luther is a Lutheran, but he's all right. But uh, Tim Keller says, Jesus lived the life we should live, and then he died the death that we deserve. Jesus lived the life we should live, and then he died the death that we deserve. That's why John writes in his prologue to his gospel in verse 16 to 17 that I read just a moment ago, for from his fullness, Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace, by definition, is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve God's grace. It's simply a gift that we receive through faith. If the law cannot save us, the law simply lets us know what sin is. I didn't know that it was against the law to covet until I read the Ten Commandments. It says, thou shalt not covet. And as I become aware of sin, that thou shalt not covet, I I realize that there's a a sinful nature inside of me that that by my natural inclination wants to covet. I want to have what other people have. I I want to do what other people do. You know, I'm not satisfied. I I have this covetous desire that's, that's a part of my sinful nature. If you're not sure whether or not we are naturally sinful, just put, see what happens when you have two babies and one pacifier. Watch what happens. That video demonstrates that we are naturally born sinful, right? We are prone to covet what others have, even steal it if we have to, right? I keep thinking, why doesn't a mom just bring another pacifier, right? I mean, just about to poke each other's eyes out. It's incredible. Nine million people have watched that video. It kind of points to our uh, sinful ways, what entertains us, you know. But the law reveals God's will. The law reveals what God wants us to do. Ultimately, though, it reveals our sin and our need for a Savior. Because by the law, none of us will be saved. As hard as we might try, we will inevitably fall short of God's design and desire for us. That's why we need Jesus. 
Jesus, who was the perfect man, who lived in perfect obedience, and then proved to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Yes, through God's one and only Son, He has paved a way so that we might have a relationship with Him. If we simply come to Jesus in faith, for as Jesus will eventually explain to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The message of Christmas is real clear. The message that God wants to tell every one of us, he wants every one of us to hear through his son, is that God loves us. He loves us so much that he would give us his only son. And as Jesus will later explain in John 15, there is no greater love than this, that a man who's willing to die for his friends. God has sent the messenger, his son Jesus, to give us the message of his great love for us. The question for all of us now is, how will we respond to that message? In humble gratitude for God's amazing grace, for God's amazing love, will we declare that Jesus Christ alone is Lord and and seek to submit to his ways and, and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us so that we might live as he lived? Or, in our own selfish, rebellious ways, will we continue to try to live life according to our ways. The choice is ours. Will we receive God's love and in gratitude submit our lives to Jesus Christ or will we try to live life our own way? What will you do? Please join me as you pray. God, you have shown us just how much you love us. That's why we're here tonight in gratitude for your great love for us. For while we were sinners, rebellious people, you did not abandon us. No, you sent your Son to save us, to be for us an example of what it means to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to show us what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yes, Jesus is the ultimate revelation to us of who God is and who God's calling us to be. And you have paved the way, Lord Jesus, through your perfect life and sacrifice on a cross so that we might have new life if we simply believe in you, if we submit our lives to you. Oh, Lord, may we make that humble choice to die to ourselves and to live for you so that you might receive all the glory. Oh, Lord, I pray that everyone here tonight would once again renew their commitment to you, or if they've never made that commitment, Lord, that they might commit to follow you and in gratitude for all that you've done for us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said.